Well, we are live. Welcome to Apologia Center. Uh, I'm Arthur Asadurian, as you can tell. I have a guest with me, uh, Dr. J.P. Moreland. This is our first live broadcast that we're doing, and J.P. was gracious enough to say, yeah, we'll jump on there and speak about this subject. I want to thank you guys. Uh, again, if you have not subscribed, make sure you hit that subscribe button and then give a couple of likes. That's going to help us in getting noticed on uh, the YouTube internet world. Um, today, we're going to be speaking about the importance of spiritual formation in apologetics. And the reason why I wanted to do this is because I think there's a lot of great content out there, apologetics content, a lot of younger Christians and the older ones who have produced it and we are standing on their shoulders are producing good content for the internet. Um, but I think there could be maybe a danger in just getting filled up with so much knowledge and information where we forget a number of things that are as important as knowing those things. Uh, with that said, I want to introduce uh, Dr. J.P. Moreland, who's a professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology. And um, I had the honor of studying with him for my MA in philosophy. And I must say, JP, the most difficult test I have ever taken was your metaphysics midterm. Man, that thing was torture. I mean, that was, uh, what, 50 questions, right? It was true and false. Uh, it was true and false uh, and uh, multiple choice. And yes. man, that thing. Students complained about that test, and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you, um, you know, like you look at that thing and you go, you know, you, you better know your stuff. You better really know the definitions because it's so nuanced where, I mean, yep. I, you had me sweating. Um, your metaphysics class was crazy for me because, it, it, you know, this isn't nothing with you. But I had a really good, like, remembrance because I you know you get into the philosophy department and everybody's going to become a philosopher and you kind of forget why you got there and that's what happened with me um and that metaphysics class gave me anxiety attacks and panic attacks I was reading stuff I wasn't understanding and I remember just turning in an assignment like two weeks late I don't know if you you probably don't remember this because you deal with so many students but I came into your office and I said I I had a very hard time with this. I don't know what's going on with me. I'm randomly crying and I'm having issues. Um, and uh, and then you kicked me in my foot and, and said, don't worry about it. You get it in about a year. Um, and I was really down. I was seriously down at that moment. And, you know, I took philosophy of mind a year later. And I remember sitting in philosophy of mind and saying, man, I get this stuff. It, JP knows what he's talking about. So it takes time, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, it yeah. It just takes time. Oh, yes. Um, so I want to speak about a couple of your books uh, that I have with me that I've read that I want to recommend to our audience and then speak about a specific book that just recently came out and um, ask you a little bit about it. Um, if you have not read The Kingdom Triangle, um, make sure you read it because it deals with not only the mind, the Christian mind, but the Christian soul and what we ought to do in our society um, and how we have to, the way that I think it should be put, take a ground back um, in, in our society. But that's done in multiple ways. So it's a really, really good book. It's, it's not that heavy in regards to reading. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really fun to read. Um, com if I compare that to philosophy, uh, philosophy made slightly less difficult, yeah. Which, JP, I don't know who came up with the title for this, whether it was you or Gary DeWeese or whoever it was, but it's, it's not really less difficult. Um, it's, it's yeah, I know. pretty difficult, man. <laughs> so, Still pretty tough. <laughs> and my favorite of all your books, Love Your God With All Your Mind. This is the uh, yeah. older version, not the revised version. As you can tell, it's, it's been torn up. This book was one of those books that really changed my life around. JP, I mean, this is, I read this when I was in Bible college and I realized there's a world of thought out there um, and, and people who think the way I was thinking and I didn't, I didn't know about apologetics and all that stuff. And it really set me on course to go into apologetics and come study uh, philosophy at Talbot. And um, it's, it's just, it's amazing. Uh, I mean, I, I've reread this book multiple times and I highly recommend people get the newer version because it's got good uh, new content in there. Um, 
Finally, I am reading Thank your you so uh, um, no problem. I'm reading your book on anxiety called Finding Quiet. Now, uh, about four chapters into the book, um, pastorally, before I moved to Armenia, I did about ten years of pastoral work, and I dealt with a number of people, especially in the recent years, who were really struggling with depression and anxiety. And I did the best uh, with what the tools I had. But reading through th through this book man i mean it's it's amazing it's so refreshing so i want you to talk about it and let people know about it the link for that uh, the amazon link is in the description box you guys can just click there go buy the book and read it and even if you're not struggling with this read if you're not struggling with anxiety read it because you can use what's in that book to help people around you so jp why don't you comment on that a little bit sure well you want me to do that now or would you like, like to proceed? Sure. Why don't you speak about kind of your experience um, and where the where the book kind of comes uh, came out of? Uh, for those who don't know, well, um, I was born uh, with a genetic predisposition towards anxiety. Uh, on my mother's side, I can trace it uh, through four generations, uh, and then I don't. I can't go beyond that, but. Um, but, uh, and what's interesting, Arthur, is that my daughter, who looks like me, has anxiety issues, but my daughter, that looks like my wife, doesn't have them. And so, uh, there is no question that our fallen human nature uh, manifests itself in different ways in different people. Uh, we don't all express our brokenness the same way. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, I was born with a natural tendency to be anxious. Now, that didn't mean I had to get that way, but it made it easier for me to be anxious and to go to that instantly as compared to other people. I was also, I lost my life when I was in and uh, my my mother was a very, very anxious person. And so one of the things that I learned that I, I want our audience to understand that anxiety is largely, not entirely, but largely a learned habit that can be unlearned through the right practices. Now, let me just unpack that for a minute. I don't, I, I want to be very that I don't say that there aren't uh, occasions of anxiety that are largely uh, genetically induced, mm. that you just inherit this. I inherited a disposition towards it, which doesn't mean I have to act on it, but, um, but what I did is I began to form a habit. And the habit was a, a, a certain way of to myself. Uh, I got in the habit of uh, spending all my time worrying about what would happen in the future. You know, well, what if this, what if I don't go on that exam, or, or what if I don't grade, or what if this or that, I'll be lonely. Well, and then I would, would magnify it. Just, oh my gosh, if that happens, I am really going to be in trouble. So I spent all my time. Uh, when I had free time, my mind would go to a default position, a default setting, I call it. And that's where your mind goes just automatically without you choosing to direct it there. And mine was worrying about the future. Um, and other people have other forms of anxiety-inducing self-talk. Uh, they have a way of, uh, for example, of what's called mind reading, where you look at other people and you just interpret their body language as though they're dangerous and they're angry at you, or that they're looking down on you for some reason. Um, the self-talk that are completely, I don't mean to make people ashamed, but they're dishonoring to the Lord. And they're not healthy. And and the problem is that they're, you, you get in such doing it that you're not aware of doing it. It's conscious level of it. Like, I don't choose to write 
a certain way when I'm writing with my hand. I just do it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a habit. Oh, yeah. um, so I, I, I realized that that and there were certain habits of emotion that I would go to in the morning. And, and those would be I'd start getting a little fearful for the day and a little bit discouraged about, uh, you know, I've got a lot to do today or whatever it might be. And those became a part of my framework. And uh, I began to realize I have some absolutely brilliant, and I, and I mean that literally, brilliant insights about the nature of human functioning that go far beyond anything that Aristotle or Plato or any other thinker knew. And I do believe the Bible was aided with by divine revelation. Don't get me wrong. But I also want to say that Paul was a very, very insightful man with the Spirit's help. And some of the things that he laid out are just mind-boggling. Uh, in terms of, of discovering today is what he said 2,000 years ago. And we're just now discovering this. So I packed all that in my book. And uh, I try to talk about it. I, I had, well, let me, if I may, just real quickly sure. wrap this up by saying that in 2003, I had a terrible year at school with a lot of pressure. And when the school year was over with, third week of May, I had a seven-month nervous breakdown where I was having daily panic attacks. I was... Uh, I, my body was filled with adrenaline and fear and and fight and flight, and I couldn't get away from it. And it eventually drained my brain of any uh, healing chemicals, and I, I was gone for seven months. It happened to me again uh, ten years later in 2013 at the end of the school year for for five months, and uh, I decided that I was going to do everything I could to whip this thing and not go there again. And, and so God's help relying upon him. I felt called to do research. And I got to tell you, Arthur, I read, I read more than you want to know <laughs> about anxiety and depression. And I believe the Lord helped me integrate it with biblical teaching and put it in, in the book, finding quiet and offer a, as a very practical, but, perhaps refreshing and a kind of a new way of looking at some of this that has honestly calmed my heart and given me a peace and a joy that I, I've never known before. And, I, you know, that can be such a slogan, but I don't mean it that way. It's been very real. But it was the result of changing some practices that took time to change them. Yeah, amen. Um, just quick two questions, because I know this is important. Uh, Mermik asks... Um, what about uh, what do you think uh, about medications for depression or anxiety uh, or other mental health issues? I know you comment on this in the book and in your in your other talks. Yeah. I'm glad that uh, this this is such a good question, and I think that they are absolutely wonderful gifts that God has given us uh, to be a part of helping get well. Um, you have to understand that that. A biblical description of, of what a human being is includes the soul. There is a spirit, which is a component of the soul. It's a, it's a kind of a faculty of the soul. And then a body, which includes the brain and the nervous system and your heart muscle, which are real key. Now, the point is that um, all three of those are fallen and broken and dysfunctional and will hurt can hurt me so what i want to do is i want to address as a christian all of them uh i will never treat this just a spiritual problem meaning that i do and that i do need to begin to try to find ways to trust god's promises better because you can't just choose to do that you have to work at that and you have to practice that Uh, but there's also uh, a lot of things that I call that aren't 
contradiction, if, if, it's, if it contradicts the word, I don't buy it. Hmm. But if the word doesn't comment on it, then I, it's fair game for me to assess whether it will work. And there's a lot that psychologists have learned about the, the way the soul works best. And then finally, um, and I never knew this, Arthur, but there is a major uh, uh, brain chemistry uh, and nervous system aspect to anxiety and depression. And see, what happened to me is that I, I had been anxious for so long that it drained my brain of a chemical called GABA, mm. which is a, is a mood uh, when, you're, when you're functioning well, it elevates your spirits and it was something God gave us to help us be joyful. It, it gets replaced with something called cortisol because uh, that then drains you and makes it almost impossible to get out of anxiety and depression. So, so I got to the point where I would have never just used medication. But, but the, the, the therapy and the biblical injunctions to me weren't doing me much good. Like, you know, rejoice in the Lord after I've just hit my thumb with a hammer and it's killing me. I'm sorry, but I, at, at that for that moment, it's just, it's just not going to help. Uh, with when I was really deep into anxiety, what I needed was to get my brain chemistry back to where it should be. So I had a fighting chance, hmm. uh, to actually choose to respond to biblical teaching and good psychology combined together into a Christian worldview. So I found that, uh, Medication is merely vitamins for the brain. What it does is restore chemicals that your brain normally creates for yourself until you get to a point where your brain, due to excessive anxiety or depression, can't doesn't have enough in it to, to build to go to build up. At that, you need a supplement. And um, I, I would always, of course, you have to go to a doctor uh, to, to get under their care. I would recommend a psychiatrist if, if that's possible because uh, they specialize in brain chemistry. That's all they do. Uh, a general, a, just a general family doctor is helpful. Hmm. But if you can get to a psychiatrist, uh, they're, they're a little bit more knowledgeable. But, but I think medications... Biblical, uh, I believe in the Old Testament. I hope people don't get upset at me about this. But there are all kinds of texts that talk about the use of alcohol as a, a form of emotional healing from depression and anxiety. There's a book called What Would Jesus Drink? And uh, there are two of them, but this one has a beer mug on it. And it is an exegetical theological treatment kidding it's so good uh it's a solid biblical study of alcohol in the bible and it makes it very very clear that god gave us alcohol to enjoy and uh drunkenness is 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 an excess that's that's of course and if someone has problems with alcoholism obviously they need mm -hmm. to just stay away but for most people this is a gift God has given us, and one of the purposes of it in the ancient world, honestly, was medicinal. Uh, and even for mood uh, uh, discouragement and anxiety. Well, I say today that people have medicated with alcohol for a long time, and now we've got something better, uh, thank God, where we can medicate with that without the dangers of becoming addicted to uh getting drunk or being dependent yeah. on alcohol yeah. yeah there's a couple of questions we'll hopefully come to it there's some extra questions that some people have privately sent me uh, as i was sharing this on social media that they want me to ask you uh but we let's speak about um spiritual formation now i think it's in the kingdom triangle where you make a comment about apologetics and you say apologetics has, has a twofold purpose right Number one, apologetic. Apologetics helps the believer strengthen their faith, those areas in which they're weak in, 
uh, in those areas which they kind of are questioning. So apologetics will help you become more confident in your own faith and your trust with God. The second area of apologetics is that it helps with unbelievers kind of getting rid of, rid of these roadblocks so that they, they are ready to accept uh, and follow Jesus. Um, so say a couple of words about the importance of apologetics. I mean, you have been in this work for, uh, I want to say, 30, 40 years. Would, would that be accurate? 50 years. Okay. See, I was, uh, I didn't want to push that a bit. So, <laughs> uh, so 50 years you've been doing this and you've done it at all levels. You know, you've, you've done work with Campus Crusade for Christ. It's called Crew Now. Um, yes. So with students, you've done it on an academic level, debates, books. I mean, you've done it all, right? So say a couple of words about the importance of apologetics and then we'll move on to spiritual formation, what it is and, and how people can grow in that. Well, in, in the book Kingdom Triangle, I, I did research in the book of Acts and in the first four centuries of the church. And I discovered that there were three major things that were emphasized to produce people that were mature Jesus followers, that were like Christ. And one of them was uh, the use of the use of the mind. And, and this involves knowing knowing what you believe and why. Uh, and that, that, that is, both are important. You understand theology and a little bit of what Scripture teaches and what you think of that. And then you have to know why you believe the things you believe. Now, this is important and because uh, a study was done in the United States by the Barna Group that showed that uh, the six top reasons that young, that millennials, uh, teens and 20-somethings, are leaving the church and even leaving Christianity is, are because they don't have answers to questions, and they feel shamed if they have doubts, hmm. which should never be true. There's Doubts are normal. But apologetics is a form of ministry uh, that is involved in caring for people. For unbelievers, it's an attempt to meet their needs and toward the kingdom. Um, if they don't, if they just want to argue, I, I don't, I'm out of there. I mean, it's not that I can't argue well. I, I can, but I don't. I don't want to dignify that kind yeah. of stuff. Mm -hmm. Person, if I answer a question and halfway through my answer, they jump to something else. So they're not really listening. They're just trying to get me. That you know. Uh, what's the point of that? So I'll tell somebody, you know, I just, this doesn't seem fruitful for me. I'd rather get together sometime down the road when we can have more of a really mutual engaging conversation instead of a, sort of this, I don't know, it feels like you're, you're trying to get me. So for the believer, learning apologetics can help remove doubts and strengthen their faith and trust in God. The second area uh, I mention is this whole issue of learning to live in the power of the spirit kingdom through signs and wonders. I actually have a book that will be coming out in about a year. I just finished the manuscript, and it's going to be on supernatural living. And it's, it's my own journey where I've seen, and those around me have seen, five different kinds of miracles, uh, specific answers to prayer, heal, and unbelievable healings, divine God speaking to us through dreams and visions, words of knowledge, prophetic words, or just in our minds, uh, angelic and demonic encounters, of which I've had both, and, and then near-death experiences. And so what I want to say is that there are ways that people can actually learn to grow in their effectiveness in praying for the sick, mm. for example. So uh, uh, knowing that they're still doing things in the world today, uh, he didn't stop in the first century. And this is, this is beyond question documented. Oh, yeah. Then I want to learn to enter in a little bit more to that. I don't have to be... Uh, somebody who's utterly gifted in this area, but why, why can't I learn to grow a bit and try to be around people? And I have, you know, the third area is what you you rightly 
your finger on, Arthur, spiritual formation. And that's the task of trying to develop a, a, a vibrant inner life that includes a tender heart, that includes a, a deep attachment to God, an experiential connection with him where I sense his presence and I am able to open my heart and tell him I love him. Mm-hmm. And where I engage in practices that form my character. So the three things for me are apologetics, knowing what you believe and why, not just about winning arguments, but for my own nurture. Second would be trying to learn how to enter more into hearing God speak to me uh, and, and in the signs and wonders. And then finally, learning to cultivate my inner life. And that's what the book, Finding Quiet addressed was that third aspect yeah. of that triangle that I'm describing. Yeah, a very interesting story. To, um, I've been teaching a, a online um, uh, people who are preparing to be missionaries. I won't go into more details about that, but to certain countries. And um, yeah. one of the ladies, uh, so we were speaking about tactics and engaging people. Um, one of the ladies today shared a story. She said, you know, um, the way I became a believer is that I had a friend whose son had started going to this Protestant church and she was from uh, Armenian apostolic background. She said, my friend, uh, it was her son, so dragged me to this church to sit down and listen to what the pastor was teaching that was incorrect so we can get him and then get this kid out of this you know, cult, they were thinking. She said, you know, we went and sat and about 30 minutes into the sermon, my friend turned to me and said, hey, um, you know, what's, what's going on? Is he saying anything that's like, you know, not biblical? She said, nothing, you know, everything he's saying is good. And she said at one point in the sermon, now she had joint pain and bone pain. She had the sickness. She said at a certain point in the sermon, the pastor turned around, pointed in her direction and said, you who have come today, who has this bone issue, God is going to heal you. And she said she felt this electricity go through her body and uh, she didn't know what was happening to her. She went home. She didn't feel the pain. She said, but I wasn't, I, I didn't want to confess there and say, hey, I've been healed or something. She said, I wanted to see if this actually stuck. So she went home. She waited a week and she said, hey, it, it, I've been healed, you know. So she went back to the church the following week and said, hey, I was here last week and you said this. And I just want to say that I've been healed, you know. And it was just a very interesting story. I mean, you know, what you're talking about is, uh, is is a regular activity in some parts of the world. And Craig Keener, you've spoken about this, but Craig Keener's written a book called Miracles. It's two volumes, you know, documenting this. And uh, Lee Strobel recently wrote like a two-year project. He wrote a book on, on miracles Excellent. as well, Case for Miracles. Excellent book. Yeah, I've, I've read it. Excellent. Yeah. So- and and, and our, the stories like you just told, I hear this and I, I say to myself, there's no way this is made up. There, what would be the motive of this lady lying? And maybe she, people would think she's super spiritual, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, but I doubt she's going to get a whole lot of benefit from lying about it. And people would notice around her that she wasn't in pain. I mean, you, you can tell when somebody's struggling with pain. And so what do you do with this? Well, it's obvious that when she went to this church, she had no expectation of being healed. Let's face it. Well, she went for the opposite reason. That was that was the. (laughs) This was not placebo, Uh, and and not only that, but it fits the description of that happened to me once, where electricity or heat will start pouring through. Now that doesn't happen every time, but I'm going to tell you. I've read hundreds of, mir- of healings, and I'll bet you it happens 65% wow. of the time. Now, she didn't know that. Do you think she's been spending a lot of time in the library reading healing stories? <laughs> uh, of course not. Uh, it happened to her. Well, she got healed. Now, I don't care if somebody's listening. I'd like an explanation for that. That's right. There is no rational more sense than the fact that Jesus Christ healed that woman because he loved her. And that's it. That's right. And I find those stories to, to be tremendously encouraging to me. How about you? Do oh, you absolutely. enjoy your... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's all of it. It's not the whole thing. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, specifically uh, when it comes to apologetics, again, because I see this danger in myself and um, I mean, I would like to think that I've grown spiritually and I've grown in my character and there's been a great deal of spiritual formation. And, and part of that has been because I've been privileged enough and blessed enough to study at places and study with people where I've seen this in action. And I've also part of it was also because I was in the ministry. So maybe there was an added pressure, a good kind of pressure where, hey, you got to you got to know your stuff. You got to live the right life uh, because you want to be the right kind of example. Um, when it comes to apologetics, there's always this danger where it's like information, information, information. And then, you know, when you get the opportunity, you guess you kind of just wipe, uh, you know, wipe the opposition out. Um, and in the entire time, there's actually no growth going on internally. You don't know yourself better. You don't know Jesus any better, but you got a lot of information. So can you share a number of disciplines, a number of things that you do that you can you know, recommend to, uh, to the audience that they can put into practice in their lives where they will start seeing fruit in their spiritual formation? Absolutely. First thing you have to do is to think about what do I want to leave behind? Uh, what would I like to be like 10 years from now? And I don't mean something specific. I have to, you know, written five books or whatever. Mm. But what I'm talking about is that I'll bet everybody listening to me would, would like at least two things. And the first one is they'd like to really feel that, that they could get to the point where they were very confident that, that the faith is true and it can withstand scrutiny and that you don't have to be afraid anymore. You might not know all the answers, but there are there's some people in the body that do. And that's one of the things, Arthur, that took the pressure off of me because I believe the Old Testament text is historically accurate, but I couldn't defend that because I've, not, I've chosen to specialize in a different area. And I feel I can do that because other people have taken up that task. And so I can refer them to their writings or so on. I don't have to be every uh, And so uh, when on to, to honest questions people give, not people who are trying to, to be jerks and show how smart they are, but real honest question. The other thing is that they would like to be a good father or, or, or wife. Or, uh, uh, and they would like their, to have friends who, who behind their back say things like, you know, I got to tell you, Arthur is the real deal. Uh, I, I really love that guy. I'd like to be like him. He's just he's he's kind. He's thoughtful. Um, there's sort of a, a sense of presence when you're around him. He actually focuses on you, and he doesn't have to do all the talking. And it, it's kind of not, not about him. You can tell he's not full of himself. I mean, I want to be that way. And and so we all need to, to, to do this as a slogan, but I don't mean it that way. But if you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, mm -hmm. Is this a decent list? And you say, oh, yeah, I would love to make progress and being like that. Okay. Well, then, one of the why would I want to spend time on apologetics and, and not do anything to become more like that? I'd miss life. I mean, yeah, I'd get to the end of my life and I would have won some arguments, but I'd be an empty shell. Mm. So, for me, I did two things, and, and these were the two major things I did to bring those together. And the first one is I changed my understanding of apologetics. And I used to think about it as, as, as trying to make sure that I got the last word and that I defeated all, all comers because there were Christians watching and one down. Okay. Well, now, there's a little bit of truth to that, but, but what that did is it made me fearful because I was afraid I was always going to run across somebody who knew more than I did. So I've driven 
to have to work in. And, and I changed my view on that. And I said, you know, apologetics, and this is Dallas Willard defines it, as a pastoral ministry of helping people. Uh, it's actually a ministry that should be in the pastoral ministry mm -hmm. department trying to care for people, uh, for people who have obstacles that they genuinely would like to overcome. They have doubts or questions or things that they just can't find an answer to. Apologetics is an attempt to help. That's all. And if I'm trying to help somebody, if, if, if I don't get the last word or if, if they say something and I don't know the answer to it, I've learned that it's perfectly okay to say, wow, I mean, I'll be honest with you, that's a tough, that's a tough question. And at this point, I don't think I've got an answer to it. Uh, but I'll, I'm going to spend some time, I'll tell, I might say to somebody, trying to poke around and see what I can come up with. Would you, would you mind if I emailed you in two or three weeks uh, and, and gave you what I've, what I've found? And what's wrong with that? <laughs> so what that does is it takes the pressure. So the first thing I did is I wanted to ch take the pressure away from seeing apologetics as something where I had to, to be a hero or win and just rather being a servant and a minister that was going to do the best I could, but I would keep growing over the years. All right. Now, the second thing I did then is I began to focus intentionally on spiritual habits and on connecting with God. Uh, and some of the things I did are located in the book, Finding Quiet. But I began to make some of those practices very, very intentional to my daily life. So that, you know, I'd get to a point where I might have to make a choice. Am I going to study a little bit more? Because I don't think I've got an answer to this question bolted down yet. Or am I going to go spend some time in solitude prayer and, and calm my heart, quiet myself, and invite the Lord to meet with me and begin to feel and to express my affection and love for him? Well, you know, it could go either way, but, there, but you have to have a balance there. We'll each find our own balance. But I'm just saying you can't neglect that because that's... That's absolutely critical uh, to what I want to be, and I want to leave a legacy of a person that was a, a mature believer that had some wisdom, perhaps, but also kind of knew his stuff and, and did the best I could. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about the importance of solitude and silence that you mentioned. Um, I remember being in seminary, and I was overwhelmed with information. Uh, well, I didn't know that at the time. I was just having a really hard time. Uh, you know, reading all this philosophy stuff, uh, and you guys didn't take that, uh, you know, easy on us. You always assigned more than all the other departments, I must say, which is, praise God, I mean, that was really good for us. But um, yeah. I remember I approached Doug Guyvitt, uh, one of our professors at Talbot, and I said, I'm having a hard time, you know, and he said, Art, you know, let me ask you a couple of questions. So he, he asked me a couple of questions, and he said, why don't you go on a, he, he said, I realize that, you know, um, there's a lot of information. Now you're reading all this stuff. There's the work you're doing. He said, what can you cut out of your life? Uh, that is information coming in. And I thought about it and I said, you know, social media is, is a regular input of information because you open it up and then people are complaining about their life or they're talking about politics. There's a thousand things going on. And he said, okay, why don't you take a complete social media fast for a month? And, um, one of the things that came out of it, I, I deactivated all my accounts on social media and I found myself doing this, which is when you speak about habits, I, I, I remember this. I would take my phone out of my pocket without even thinking. I would take my phone out of my pocket and I would unlock it and go to the area where my Facebook app used to be. And I would be like, wait, it's not there. I've deleted it. <laughs> so it's a regular You're reminder. You're one man, I'll tell you. <laughs> Yeah, it, that's funny. And and then I realized, wait, this has become such a habit for me where, like, I'm just walking and I want to just open it up and look at this and input more information into my life, and and actually realizing the importance of, hey, it might mean I wake up an hour early, thirty minutes earlier than everybody else, 
because that's where the silence is, you know, uh, before the hustle bustle of, of life kind of gets going. Because we are so, are like a good portion of people's lives now is actually digital. Even more now with this whole COVID situation. Um, so I'm going to, someone asked me a question to ask you. And uh, they wanted your opinion on this whole situation with the pandemic and stuff. Um, and I mean, comment on it however you would like. But I wanted to change it a little bit and saying, uh, how can people, because there's a lot of people who are under anxiety and they're lost jobs. There's serious issues going on apart from being just afraid generally. Um, what are ways where we can use the situation, uh, this COVID situation, to enhance our spiritual formation and also our apologetic lives? That is such a good question. Such a good question. And uh, I, I actually have an answer to it. Because uh, my wife and I have been sort of quarantined for about four months. Now, that doesn't mean that we haven't gone to the grocery store. But really, we spent most of our time in the house. And uh, I certainly have, because I'm very, very vulnerable to this. Because I've had several cancer surgeries in my immune system. I've had chemo and radiation, and I'm 72. And, and so I've got a bunch, a combo of things that are not good. Uh, but uh, uh, the first thing I've done is I think that there's been an overreaction to this. I don't think the COVID situation is as dangerous as the media and everybody's saying. Uh, the people that are dying are overwhelmingly within a certain demographic group, and it's older people who have some kind of a vulnerability. Children are just not dying from this. Uh a very tiny percentage as as our middle-aged people they're just it's like getting sick they get sick for two or three weeks and it's over with so i mean it's there's been too big of a reaction mm -hmm. to it in my opinion and too many of our liberties have been taken away and uh the economy has suffered tremendously which has been a hard problem for people as well so you got to find a balance I'm not suggesting that we don't need to be cautious don't hear me say that, but I just, I'm not as thing as everybody wants to be because I just don't, I don't think it's as big a deal as they're saying. Now, that said, given the fact quarantine, what I have done is I have then learned to live with, I don't know how to put this, but with um, less busyness to occupy my time because you know a lot of times I'd go drive somewhere and fiddle around maybe I'd go shopping or I'd, I'd go to the go to some hangout and uh, you know get some coffee or uh, and, and you know that would be a way of just kind of you know and, and read my email what I've done is like you, I have limited my time on my computer uh, and Instead, I've spent a lot more time letting myself relax and letting myself be alone. And I have learned that, that I always invite the Lord Jesus in the morning, not only to be with me through the day, but, but in Psalm, Psalm uh, 139, 23 to 24, search me, Lord, and, know, and, and please know me. Look, look, I, I give you free permission to, to examine me and to see if there's some painful way inside of me that's hurt, anxiety or whatever. And please lead me in the way of shalom. Mm. So I open up in the morning to letting the Lord do what he wants. And then I try to be sensitive to that with his help. And we work together for me to become more aware of when I'm there's something inside of me that I need to let go of. And so then I practiced do, doing more quiet prayer, do, do, doing some some reading and some really good Christian books without feeling like I need to. The goal is to get this read, uh, and I know what that's like. Uh, uh, you know, we've all had that, uh, and the grad school will do that to you. But instead, reading it as slowly as I want to and pausing. And praying or thinking about it because I want to get something. I don't have to finish this thing. Mm -hmm. I don't have a deadline. 
So I have focused my attention on taking advantage of this forced period of being alone and try to use it to my advantage, listening to Christian music, sitting in quiet and inviting God's presence to come. And you might get bored, but that's okay. Try to work through the boredom and, and, and don't think anything weird's happening to you if you get a little bit bored. Uh, but, but you can't, if you don't balk and, and freak and start going back on your, you know, the social media the, to the same degree as you used to, <laughs> mm. I'm not saying cut it all out, but, but then you'll be okay. Cause you'll learn to, to be bored and not be, and not be uptight about it. So those are some things that I've done that have been really good for me. Yeah. I had a, I had a professor and in I'm, Bible college who would say, uh, people, a lot, a lot of young people complain about boredom. He said, whoever said boredom is a bad thing? Uh, and it's always, it's like, okay, that, that's just a true statement. You know, why do we think boredom is a bad thing? It is a true statement. Um, so I have a friend who sent a question in and I have no idea what he's even talking about. Okay. Uh, but uh, he assumes you do. And it's, I think, uh, some of Dallas's thoughts later on uh, in his life. Um, and I'll just read what he wrote, okay? He said, do you have an opinion about the soteriology of attachment that uh, Willard was pondering in the latter years of his life? Um, so I'm assuming some context, might, I mean, for me at least, like I have no idea what he's talking about because he's been, he's been listening to Jim Wilder and reading books by Jim Wilder and, and paying attention to Dallas's stuff. And I've read uh, Dallas's stuff, but... Help me understand what's what he's talking about here, and then and then your comments on it. Well, I've I've, I've read the uh, the Wilder Willard book that just came out a little with Nav Press a while ago, and um, I think Wilder has some good things to say, but I think that he is neuroscience. He doesn't have enough philosophical training to to make sense out of. He says some things that are just kind of out there, uh, you know, like your memories are in your brain or oh. something, and I. I don't even know what that means. I mean, I have no clue how to even what that's supposed to mean. I mean, are memories spatially extended? Is is one memory two inches long and the other one it smells you know, like a rose? <laughs> but everything that's yeah, everything in your brain has got spatial extension. Yeah, memories don't have spatial extension, so they aren't in the brain anyway. Uh, so uh, attachment is uh, actually very interesting. And I have come to believe years ago that it really is the fundamental thing that happened to us in the fall. Because if you look at what happened, and let's take the fall as, a, as something really that happened seriously, uh, there are three things that happened to me as a result of that. The first one is that I'm separated. I am born into this world and I'm alienated mm -hmm. from God. I, there's some awareness of his existence, but... Uh, I'm separated from you. Uh, uh, there's a barrier somehow. The second thing is I find myself, I don't know, polluted or broken or, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fallen being is the way you'd put that. I'm fleshly, but, but that also means I'm broken and messed up. And the third thing is that I do things that I, I wish I didn't do. Uh, uh, and so those are the three. Hard. And this is the way a lot of people parent. And I, I used to parent this way to begin with. Thank God I caught it. You don't want to start by making the formation of your children's character the fundamental thing you do because, and discipling them, because that's not the way God parents us. The first thing he does is attach to us. He, he has a message given to us that he loves the world that he gave his son and that he wants us to enter his family and to have Papa, Daddy, filial relationship with him. Jesus, God, Daddy. Mm. So, so the, the problem for me and my first commitments to, to God who loved for and irrespective of anything else. Now I've got to deal with to the fact that I am I'm broken and messed up. And 
fault that I do things. And so then characterization is a way of earning God's acceptance, seizing an opportunity to live a life of flourishing according to the way God made me to work. Now, in psychological theory, they've discovered recently, last 20 years, that attachment is one of the most important things for mental health that you can have. Little children attaching uh, to a stable, as long as the attachment is a healthy one, uh, and your parents aren't giving you mixed messages, uh, then, then attachment is absolutely crucial. So now when we come to Dallas, uh, I think Dallas said there were two Gospels in the New Testament, justification by faith and the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. And I believe that he thought that the Gospel of justification by faith was like the beginning of a race where you have to start the race and then the Gospel of the Kingdom of Heaven is about how to run the race to, to the end, to the finish line. Mm -hmm. But you've got to start it first. And so uh, the gospel of justification by faith uh, is the very first place that you've got to get, you've got to get started right there. But then that should never be isolated because the, the, you start in order to run down this pathway, namely learning to become like the Lord Jesus and live in his kingdom and mature and be changed, right? So that is a legitimate outworking of the gospel of the kingdom, but it doesn't take the place of yeah. justification by faith. And so when Dallas says, may, it may well be that this bull is largely about attachment, talking about our need for forgiveness of sins. He's talking about this broader concept of the gospel of the kingdom. And at the very core of maturing in the Lord and living in the kingdom is learning how to attach intimately and build a closeness, of, a bond of closeness with God. And I think, don't you think that that's down there near the kind of the bottom of what we need to do? I, it's, that makes sense. So I want to, I think what he wants to do is get attachment back on the table instead of us spending all our time thinking about stopping sinning and and becoming the fruit of the Spirit, which are crucial, but there's got to also be this connectedness. Now that we're in the, the family, we have to learn to connect and attach to God, and that's where solitude, prayer, and silence come in. Yeah, and... So I want to kind of bring that back and, and relate it to the apologetics world. Uh, recently, I saw an interview with uh, Bill Craig. And um, he said that I have really tried very hard in my debates to be a Christian gentleman. And uh, I mean, he he's ruthless, right? Like if you've watched a Bill Craig debate, uh, he's... God have mercy on whoever he's... <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't want to debate Craig, right? Oh, no. <laughs> so, um, I mean, he, he's so prepared. Everything's organized. Everything's in its place. But he's so loving um, to the individual. I mean, I was live at the, at the debate at Biola where he had with Chris Hitchens. And the way he conducted himself and, you know, kind of Christopher Hitchens would go around and say very uh, kind of out there yes. stuff. And just Bill Craig would just graciously and lovingly respond uh, to to his questions and this is kind of I, I guess this was the reason why I wanted to the, to do this interview because um, you know with Robbie Zacharias's passing recently and the statement kept being repeated that you know behind every question is a questioner uh, this is something that he kind of nailed and drilled into people like hey pay attention to the person and and love the person I, see I see that as a as a, a an aspect of our spiritual formation of our maturity to actually be able to see that and have that kind of a, a, a love for the individual who's in front of you who might even want to be just like completely destroying you you know everything you stand on um i guess um maybe a couple of uh, stories if, if something comes to mind on on things of that sort um um where it's been helpful your your kind of work the effort you've put into developing spiritually 
has resulted in actually building a great friendship with someone you disagree with uh, deeply. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. I have, uh, there, there are a number of, I have either debated it live or uh, have debated in journal articles, and we've done point by counterpoint, but I, I, I can see them in a meeting or interact with them, and there's no animosity. Uh, there is a sense of mutual respect, and, um, you know, there is a place for addressing a fool according to his folly. And if somebody's just being a jerk, there is sometimes a legitimate place for sarcasm. Jesus used it pretty regularly. He got sarcastic. And some, you know, take the log, take the beam out of your eye, dude. You know, I mean, that, <laughs> well, it's pretty sarcastic. You know, you could have said, well, you need to get rid of your, your own hindrances before you deal with somebody. I didn't say, so take the beam out of your eye. Well, there's a place for that. And, um, uh, we're told that we can mock the fool, uh, the fool to save the simpleton in the Proverbs, where the fool is somebody who ought to know better, and they're destroying the simpleton who doesn't know and is kind of naive and needs help. And so sometimes you can, it's okay to you know, give a little zinger or sarcasm, not angrily, don't be angry. But, but to, you know, hey, come on, dude, you, you got to be crazy. You, I can't believe that uh, uh, to, for the simpleton to be encouraged. But that doesn't have to be unkind. Yeah. And it can be in the spirit of sort of a kind of a little bit of irony or, or kind of jesting a little bit. But, but by and large, uh, if you start getting angry, you've got insulting things especially insulting things to things you treasure, uh, like the Lord Jesus, uh, you know, and, and the, gee, that's hard. Uh, but, but, but it doesn't do any good, I have found, to just become a jerk about it. Yeah. Uh, go into overdrive, and that, that is profoundly, you know, to the kingdom. <laughs> that's right, yeah. So, yeah, so you're right, brother. I think these two go, go in tandem, and... Uh, it, it takes failure, but you have to learn from your failures and and try again. And uh, don't try to cover up your failures because we all make them. That's how you get the word Bill Craig's at. I'm sure he early in his um, ministry. <laughs> um, so I, I want to ask uh, two final questions as we end up here. There's a statement that gets repeated a lot in sermons, just everywhere, like in, in different books and stuff. And I think you're the one who said it. I, I, uh, now, I want to clarify this and make sure that it is you who said it first. And I, have a, I think it was, um, it was during a debate with Kyle Nielsen uh, where a statement was made that, you know, Buddha is in his grave, Muhammad is in his grave, all these guys are, are in their graves, but Jesus is not. His, his tomb is empty. Are, are you the one who said that statement first? Like, that's you. That, so far as I know, yeah, I never got it from anybody. And, you know, he said, well, why, why Christianity instead of Buddhism or religion? And I said, well, I said, uh, Buddha is buried in his grave. Muhammad is in his grave. Uh, and, uh, but, but Jesus isn't. And I said, if you have a death problem, that might be something you'd want to look into. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, I did. I did. Because that kind of is unique. Oh, I mean, yeah. So it wasn't. It, it was not a pre kind of meditated comment you made. It was just answer to a question. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Okay, let's finish up with this. Uh, earlier on, when we started, you made a comment about Paul said things that we are just discovering. And um, someone asked a question: What did Paul say that we are just discovering now? Now I want to clarify this a bit, and, and maybe, maybe because in the book um, uh, Finding Quiet. You speak about, you know, the book of Romans speaks about uh, we ought to offer up our, the members of our bodies as living sacrifices. And then you start like pointing out what that might look like. Um, now, that's a passage that's been like generally theoretically explained and nobody really gets into the details, but you do. And I guess I'll couple these two things up. What does Paul say that we are just discovering? And then specifically speak about that text in which Paul is saying that. 
Well, Paul, is, Paul sometimes uh, uh, says things that are just now finding. For in Romans 6 and, and in Romans 12, but Romans 6, talks about presenting the members of your body to God instruments of righteousness or shalom instead of instruments of pain and, and, and unrighteousness. Now, by, by present your members, he doesn't mean, you know, here, Lord, here's my body, use it. He's talking about uh, taking specific parts of your body and starting to engage in practices that move the ingrained neurological habits that are in your flesh. So that, for example, you have muscle memory. And uh, you have certain ways you write or play the piano or swing a baseball. I don't know what it mm -hmm. is. But those grooves that are, are now part of your character. Uh, and so what you want to do, if you're bad at, at baseball or soccer, whatever it might be, is you want to you practice to get rid of the bad grooves and replace them with good grooves that are conducive to being better at soccer. Well, Paul, that's what Paul's saying, but there are certain grooves in us that lead us automatically to worry and fear and anxiety and anger. And by practicing things like fasting and certain forms of self-talk that use the mind and mind, you can actually now scans of people, brains who have very up brain grooves and they're racked with obsessive compulsive disorders and anxiety and told them to talk to themselves in a certain way for three weeks and just whether you believe the self-talk or not if you want to believe it just start doing it whether you believe it or not and eventually you will believe it mm. so do you understand what i mean so you got to start somewhere uh and so after three weeks they did a scan and their brains were healed wow. They were normal. They didn't have the problem anymore. That's what Paul is talking about in in in, in Romans six, and uh, uh, so that that would be an example of something that he is clearly laying out that they're discovering now is a real critical component to reaching your nervous system and your how great. That's that? amazing. That is amazing. Um, well, as we end, someone just put up a comment, and I think it's like the greatest note we can end on, actually. Uh, Apologetics and Evidence uh, wrote this. Uh, he wrote, Dr. Moreland, your work on the soul really opened a whole new world for me. I love your books. Thank you. And I want to say thank you for all the work you've done and uh, what a blessing you have been to the church. And not just the church in America, because a number of us have taken these ideas, whether it was reading your books or whether it was studying with you, having that privilege, and, um, and just sending it with people. Uh, you know, I sat down with a pastor one time, someone who'd been in the ministry for 30-something years. Now, this was when I was actually taking philosophy of mind with you. And we had a conversation, and I said, um, uh, made some kind of a he made a comment uh, similar to kind of, uh, you know, your brain and stuff like that. And I said, you know, do you think God has memories? And he said, yes. And I said, does he have a brain? And he looked at me like in a very strange way and said, I have never thought about that in my 30-something years of ministry. Not once has have I said, wow, God has memories and not a brain. Um, and that was like amazing. I was like, yes, you know. <laughs> Uh, you gotta love we're it. we're moving forward. So JP, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me and uh, again blessing us and and being such a blessing to the church. Um, and again, keep producing. You said that there's a new. You didn't mention this, but we said in private, there's a new version, new edition coming out of Philosophy Made Slightly Less Difficult. We've revised it and added some new material. It'll be out in about six months. Awesome. Uh, I want to I want to thank first of all this young. Um, uh, sent that I, I, whoever you are dear dear brother uh, I, I it means a lot to me and Arthur I, I love you and I'm thank your show you read the word about this program get people signed up because we need people to come and have these conversations
And Arthur knows people that he can get on and he be on. Let's make this thing a and uh, let's, let's prepare the kingdom. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, JP. Thank you so much. Well, we will say um, a uh, our, our goodbyes, I guess, till, uh, till our, the next time uh, I see you. Again, I try to produce about two videos a week, uh, short videos, um, and apologetics as, uh, you know, apologetics for me is a worldview defense, not just giving arguments for God's existence. So sometimes I deal with politics and culture and society and also with uh, the, the added arguments and, and reasons for God's existence and why Christianity is true. And Christianity is true and we can have uh, such an amazing confidence in knowing that Christianity is true. Thank you guys. God bless you. And I will see you next time.